Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We frequently have as our guest, John Hood. And the reason we do that is because John uh, sort of uh, has always been sort of associated with people that I guess are associated with think tanks. And so he sits around and thinks. And I've always visualized that John has a pipe and he has a sweater and with patches on it. And he sits around and reads all the time. And because he always seems to know a little bit about most everything. And it's for that reason that we always like to have him on. John Hood, though, in his real-life job, the job he gets paid for, is president of the John William Pope Foundation. And uh, so, uh, anyway, with that uh, this wonderful introduction, we welcome John back to the program. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, as, as obviously odd as that introduction was, Don, I'm an obviously odd person, so you, you sort of captured me well. Okay, well, well, we'll just leave it at that. I notice you don't have your pipe with you, but anyway, that's okay. Uh, when I was a freshman at Carolina back in 1960, 1959, the first thing all the freshmen did was go up to the Sutton's drugstore and buy a pipe, and we all walked around smoking pipes. That lasted about three months. But uh, we I did exactly the same thing in my freshman year at Chapel Hill. I went to Sutton's drugstore and bought a pipe just to see if I would like it. I lasted a little longer. I, I, I smoked it for a year or so. And well, I had not the a smell of it, but I actually more preferred smelling somebody else smoking a pipe than smoking it myself. I think that was the case with me as well. So uh, anyway, that I, I don't think the students do that anymore. At least if they smoke a pipe, it probably doesn't have uh, tobacco in it. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll let it go at that. Okay, so uh, John, We've got lots of things we want to talk about uh, on the national scene, the state scene. We've, the political season is starting. There's some uh, issues with the election that we want to talk about. We also want to talk about some potential candidacies and how things are shaking out. But let's start uh, because it's uh, at the top of the news this week, and that's uh, the fact that it's going to be a, a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And so President Biden is going to have his uh, opportunity to appoint someone to the Supreme Court. How do you see that shaking out? Well, I think that the candidates that were immediately presented, and there were like three uh, top-level picks that Biden was apparently considering, plus a number of other potential picks, including a couple of people from North Carolina, Anita Earls, who's currently on the North Carolina Supreme Court, an associate justice, uh, was mentioned. She hasn't been on the high court in North Carolina very long. In fact, she hasn't been a judge very long, but she's a high-profile person, a high-profile court in a big state. And obviously, Sheree Beasley, who was the chief justice of North Carolina's Supreme Court, who is now running for U.S. Senate, she was also mentioned. Uh, but I don't think they're in the top tier of candidates. And so I, I actually think that Biden will make his nomination quickly. I think it will probably that nomination will be confirmed fairly quickly. I, uh, I, as much drama as Supreme Court picks have generated in the last few years, I don't actually think this will be that dramatic. Well, I sort of get that feeling, too, and I don't keep up with it as closely as you do, but that just sort of seems like that uh, uh, that's the way I'm reading the tea leaves as well. It would be an interesting, op uh, let, let's say that Sherry Beasley does move up the ladder, because obviously she has, has uh, a, a, a great reputation, as, uh, uh, as we all know, and, and, and served in, as Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. 
wonder what she would uh, do because uh, being on the Supreme Court obviously trumps being a candidate for Senate. I mean, you haven't been elected yet. Well, this is an important point you're making, Don. She is, of course, presumptively the nominee for the Democrats for the North Carolina Senate seat this year. But who's to say she would win? Lots of people, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show, but lots of people think that the 2022 election cycle will tilt at least modestly Republican. In a state like North Carolina, they could be real trouble for Sheree Beasley, even separate from who she ends up running against and how the issues develop. Uh, if she were to be offered a nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court, I got to think she would consider that significant, consider that seriously. As you say, that would almost certainly she'd be confirmed. And that would be a seat on the Supreme Court. And she has the possibility of being elected to the U.S. Senate. By no means is it guaranteed. It's not even, in my opinion, right now, probable. Well, it would be an interesting dilemma for her and for the Democratic Party because everybody else is pulled out of that race. I guess people could re-enter. Yeah, I mean, uh, because of the redistricting case, all the candidate filings were delayed. Yeah. And so no one's committed yet. I mean, if yeah. she were to be approached by the Biden folks and she said yes, there would be time for other Democrats to get into the yeah. race, should they wish to. The other news, of course, uh, on the uh, on the national scene is the fact that uh, nothing that Biden seems to do takes very well. The economy, uh, of course, we are seeing a lot of inflation, and that's on everybody's mind. And whether he's to blame or not, or whether he could do something about it, is aside from the point. He's going to be blamed for it, um, and uh, that will be an issue. Interest rates are going to slide up. Uh, that's almost for certain. It always happens in periods of inflation. And we have all sorts of uh, problems with supply chains and so forth, and Biden is uh, uh, not been able to solve any of these problems. I'm again. I'm not necessarily sure he's responsible for them, but nonetheless, uh, being whether he's responsible or not, uh, the public is going to view that, and his his ratings are are still very very low. So, what what do you think he's up to, and where how will he try to cope with his current image? I think that Joe Biden uh, made just a series of colossal errors. Now, you can say if you were like a real heavy partisan Democrat, you could say none of it was his fault. It's all just things that happened. He's got a rough time of it. The system is rigged against the president. Or if you're a hardcore partisan Republican, you could say Joe Biden was always doomed to fail. He's horrible. He's a secret socialist. He's in the pay of George Soros, whatever you want to say. My view is I've never been a big fan of Joe Biden, but he had a lot of political experience in his life. And I thought he might use a little bit more common sense after being elected president in an election where he did not run uh, a really aggressively ideological campaign. He ran a campaign of, I'm going to give the country a breather after four tumultuous years. Uh, I'm, I'm unthreatening. I'm, se- I'm a senior statesman. I know how Washington works. I can bring people together. I can calm things down a bit. That was his appeal to the swing voter. Of course, partisan Democrats are always going to want a partisan Democratic agenda, and the same for the Republicans. But the people who voted for Biden, who otherwise might have voted for Trump or not voted at all, they weren't voting for a new New Deal or a new great society or some social revolution or something like that. They were voting for something like normalcy, and they didn't get it. And they didn't get it because Biden chose not to give it to them, not because of 
inflation just happened or the COVID didn't go away. These, these things happened and Biden has some, but not all responsibility for it. But he chose to go for broke in these very aggressive, you know, the Build Back Better legislation, the election law legislation that was being proposed for a, a Senate that was 50-50 and a House that was only narrowly Democratic. This was an agenda that really wasn't at all suited for the times and it wasn't suited for the level of power the Democrats actually had in Washington. That was his fault. He did that. His people did that. And it has ended poorly. And then the other colossal mistake, in my opinion, was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It was a it was a it was completely unnecessary and it was bungled. And I think that people are underestimating how much the Afghanistan story had really drove Biden underwater. Uh, lots of other things have happened. He hadn't gone. He keeps slipping. But what really broke the country's patience, the, the, the swing voters patience with Biden was the humiliation of seeming to run from the Taliban and surrender uh, uh, to a, 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 a foreign foe that had not defeated us. And so I, I just think that was a disaster. I think he continues to make mistakes. Is it impossible for him to recover? Yes. I mean, uh, no, it's not impossible, uh, but it would require a lot more humility and a lot, of, a much more modest agenda. Now, there's some inklings of that. Uh, they are talking about finally working together with Republicans and Democrats in Congress to reform the election count legislation that was passed back in the 1880s the sort of ambiguous process that we have if we have any kind of disputes about a presidential election, the kind of thing that Trump's supporters are trying to get Vice President Pence to exercise the power they alleged he had to essentially uh, refuse the electoral votes of states that had, you know, controversies and more or less put the president back in power. That's a bill that should be rewritten. That statute should be rewritten. And now it looks like maybe there'll be a bipartisan bill to do that. That's the kind of thing Biden should have done last year, maybe building towards some more aggressive agenda later. But I guess he figured I've got a brief time when the Democrats are in charge of Capitol Hill and the White House, and I'm going to go for broke. And he, he rolled the dice and he crapped out. It was just a big mistake. Well, big mistake. Yeah, it's certainly interesting because, well, as you said, he did not, you know, when you're 50-50 in the Senate, as we have found out, it only takes one senator, one senator to say, no, I'm not going to go along with that. And all of a sudden, uh, if the Republicans remain unified and on most of those issues, they will, uh, then nothing's going to happen. I mean, they I have to hold the problem, Don, is that they, and this is not a problem unique to Biden or his people, but they certainly exemplify it is a superficial misreading of the public opinion polls. You know, they, they got some pollsters to ask questions that were favorably disposed towards the Build Back Better plan and the vote right, voting rights bill and all that. And they convinced themselves that large swaths of the population were demanding what Biden was selling. And so Joe Manchin and some of the other stick in the muds wouldn't certainly can't stand against public opinion. And it was all a facade. The, the public didn't want to run away from Afghanistan. They would have. They wanted to try to figure out a way to disengage from the Afghanistan um, uh, uh, situation, but not this way. That's not what they were in favor of. Was retreating, running away. 
and leaving behind equipment and leaving behind people that were going to be killed and all that's not what they were in favor. So I think this was a superficial reading of the polls. Our policies are attractive. Let's go for them. And not really thinking through how the public would respond if things didn't go according to plan, which, of course, things almost never go according to plan. Well, as we will probably talk about a little bit later on, the the other thing that I, I think he's failed on is he has not done something about the supply chain issue, at least publicly, where he has said, this is a problem and I'm going to do something about it because we are going to grocery stores and seeing shortages on the shelves and we are seeing prices rise because of shortages. And, uh, you know, as Bill Clinton once said, uh, what was his great line? It's the economy stupid. It's the economy stupid. His, well, his supporters did or his aides did. Look, uh, there are limits to how much Biden or anybody in Washington could do about this, but they could do some things and they could at least talk about it as if it's a real issue. They seem to downplay it and dismiss it at first. And that was a foolish thing to do. You can downplay and dismiss foreign affairs like people may not know much about what's happening there. They can see what's happening at the gas pump or at the grocery store. If you tell them it isn't happening and they're looking down at their receipt, this is a bad idea. You're exactly right. It's, it's, sometimes it's not what you do, it's what you say. Well, our guest is John Hood, uh, and we will be back with another segment of Carolina Newsmakers, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the upcoming uh, election, <laughs> if we have one and when, and we'll do that right after these messages. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. We want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Hope you enjoyed your meal. And I just want to say... He's lucky to have a brother like you. Lucky? Caring for my brother is far from easy. But he's a part of me, like my arms and legs, so I'll be his. No time for tired. Nothing can disable this love. He needs me, but I'm the lucky one, even though I need help now and then. If you're caring for a loved one, visit aarp.org caregiving for care guides and community. Support for your strength. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. John Hood is with us. And uh, John, let's let's turn our attention to uh, a possible, I say a possible, surely we're going to have a primary election. We're not quite sure when it's going to be, and we're not quite sure at this point in time as we record this program uh, exactly what the districts might look like and so forth. So uh, bring us up to date on all, where all that stands and what's likely to happen. Until the redistricting case in North Carolina is settled, which, of course, has nothing to do with the Senate race, that's a statewide race. But until the redistricting case, the North Carolina Supreme Court acts on it in some fashion, which may come in the next few days, um, we won't have a clear sense of what the timetable for the election is. But imagine that it sticks and we're going to have a primary in May. 
that means filing is going to happen real quick. And uh, right now we've still got what appears to be at least three candidates with a real contention for the U.S. Senate nomination for the Republicans. Pat McCrory, the former mayor of Charlotte, former governor of North Carolina. Ted Budd, who's a member of Congress uh, from the Triad area. Uh, I think he's in his second or third term. And uh, then Mark Walker, who's a former member of Congress from the Triad area. Uh, there had been some thought that Mark Walker would be interested in running for a U.S. House seat. There was one created in the recent congressional maps drawn by the Republican-led General Assembly uh, in the Triad area. People thought, well, he'll do that instead of running for the U.S. Senate. And in fact, you may remember the spate of stories suggesting that Donald Trump and other allies of Trump had talked to Walker and promised that if Walker got out of the U.S. Senate race, and ran for Congress for the U.S. House instead, that Trump would endorse Walker for that uh, U.S. House seat. Now, there is no U.S. House seat to file in right now. Uh, we don't know exactly what the maps will look like. And there seem to be also some differences of account or opinion about this supposed deal. So just the other day, Mark, Wal Mark Walker did clarify and sort of reannounce, I'm running for U.S. Senate, not for the U.S. House. So for now, we've got to think there are at least three candidates. There's also Marjorie Eastman running, a um, businesswoman. Uh, so there are a few other candidates, too. But I think this is ultimately going to come down to uh, a contest between McCrory and Bud. I think those are the two likely uh, front runners here. They're very tight in the polls right now, but there are lots of undecided voters, lots. Bud has the Trump endorsement, and many thought that if you get – Donald Trump's endorsement in a Republican primary in 2022, you're going to win. Um, but that doesn't, is not necessarily the case. For one thing, apparently lots of voters don't yet know that Ted Budd has been endorsed by Trump, even though there's been a lot of spending to try to lead voters to that conclusion. But um, there's lots of voters who remain undecided. And I looked at a recent poll that the Locke Foundation did where they asked Republican primary voters about this. And about half of voters said that if they knew that Trump had endorsed a candidate, it would make them much more likely to vote for that candidate. Now, I actually interpreted that as kind of low. I thought that would be a higher number. So it might not be enough, actually, if the race narrows to just McCrory and Bud, for Bud to say I'm endorsed by Trump. There may be more going on than that. And in fact, uh, Pat McCrory has been much more willing to be out and on shows and be interviewed and go to uh, forums. Uh, there's certainly a plan right now to have some sort of televised debate that I believe that Donald, that uh, Pat McCrory has said yes to, and Mark Walker has said yes to, and Eastman has said yes to, and Bud has not yet said yes. So um, we'll just have to see how this uh, Senate primary plays out. But right now it's kind of, it's interesting. It's kind of a dynamic where the national actors are coming in supporting Bud, not just the Trump folks, but um, the uh, Club for Growth, who was a political action committee, uh, conservative donors and activists supporting Bud. So it's sort of a national push for Bud, but within the state, Pat McCrory still having a lot of support. We'll just have to see how that plays out. Well, he wasn't an unpopular governor. I mean, he, he uh, you know, he, he didn't leave uh, with uh, uh, by bad taste in people's mind. Uh, no, he was narrowly defeated in 2016 yeah, narrowly defeated, yeah. by, by Roy Cooper, who in yeah. 2016 came across as a sort of 
center center left moderate yep. sort of candidate. So yeah, McCrory was was hardly a, a politician with no future and retains a lot of support, but not everybody supports him. Of course, that's why Bud has yep. a chance. So we'll just have to see how it goes. I, what's interesting is how little people have been focused on the issues. Uh, Bud and his folks try to make it all about Trump or no Trump. Um, McCrory's trying to, to get people to focus on some of the issues uh, of the race. The How do they disagree about, you know, federal spending and uh, other kinds of priorities. Uh, so as the issues become more to the fore, what's the real disagreement between these individuals? I think that will help us better get a handle on who's likely to win. John, we're recording this program uh, on Thursday for playback on Saturday and Sunday. So something could have happened on Friday that makes this question seem silly. But uh, do you think there's a possibility that the uh, court is going to come back and, and change the congressional districts in any shape, form or another? Yes, I think that if if I had to bet, as we're speaking right now, I think that the North Carolina Supreme Court will find problems with the congressional and perhaps the legislative maps that the legislature drew. I think that they will do so, uh, arguing that they are extreme partisan gerrymanders that violate the Constitution, though there really isn't any standard for determining what an extreme partisan gerrymander is. And the claims they're making about the Constitution, in my mind, are, are unfounded. I mean, I'm all in favor of reforming redistricting. I've been trying to do it for decades. I think we should do it the right way, which is to amend the Constitution to put some criteria in and change the process and make it better. I'm all in favor of doing that. I just don't think the North Carolina Supreme Court should be able to invent such a process and invent such new standards out of whole cloth, which is what they're they're apparently going to do. Now, the scope of what the Supreme Court is going to do is entirely unclear to me. They may insist on some fairly modest changes in the maps and let the legislature redraw them and that'd be the end of it. Or they could hire their own special master, their own expert, and draw the maps themselves and argue the legislature shouldn't even have another bite at the apple or something in between. I was struck by the Attorney General Josh Stein and, and Governor Roy Cooper. They intervened and, and submitted a brief and suggested that the Supreme Court ought to adopt a standard that is kind of like the standard we have for population. When you draw legislative seats in North Carolina, you have to have roughly the same population in each district. It can't vary by more than about 5% up or down from the average size. And for a congressional seat, it has to be almost exactly the same number of people uh, down to the person. Uh, their argument is you should do something like that with computer algorithms. If you, ran, if you took a map, a set of data, and you ran a million times, and you compared it against a map that the legislature draws, you should strike the map down if it lies outside plus or minus 5% the sort of median outcome from your computer algorithm. This sounds a little convoluted. It's not as crazy as it sounds, but it is certainly not something that a Supreme Court could just conjure up. By the way, we found this in the shadow of the penumbra of this language and just make up a standard. But honestly, Don, Donald, let's imagine Let's imagine the Supreme Court took that proposal from Stein and Cooper and they applied it. I still don't think it would matter very much. Uh, it might mean instead of a, let's say, a, a 10 Republican, four Democrat likely outcome for Congress, you might have a 
9-5. I mean, the Democrats would take an extra seat out of this lawsuit if they could get one, but it hardly strikes me as earth shattering. And similarly, on the legislative side, if you implemented this standard and you applied it against the maps the Republicans drew, I mean, maybe you'll give the Democrats another state Senate seat out of 50 or a couple of state House seats out of 120. Again, not exactly an earth shattering outcome for such a big lawsuit. So I'm underwhelmed by the stakes here. And I know that's not what people say. What's what's happening right now is going to determine the future of North Carolina for 10 years or longer. I don't know. I, from what the Democratic plaintiffs have come up with, the arguments they've made and the maps they've only they've submitted themselves. I'm just not sure this is going to matter a whole lot of the whole scheme of things. Well, I, I, from what I've looked at, I'm not quite sure how you could change it radically, as you said, and, and quite frankly, one of the things you could do is, uh, if, if the Democrats are not careful, is they could weaken the very strong districts that they do have and uh, make them more competitive. And there make is, them- in fact, a possibility that the map that the Democratic plaintiffs offered, if you had a really strong Republican wave in 2022, yep. sort of like 1994 or 2010, yep. and it's possible, if you had that scenario, the Republicans might be better off under the Democratic plaintiff's map. Uh, I, I just don't, I, my point is people are arguing this is the future of North Carolina state. I think that is exaggerated. It is possible that the Republicans would have a supermajority under their map and maybe under some map that this North Carolina Supreme Court orders, not the ones the plaintiff offered, but maybe they order some other map and it means that the Republicans don't quite get to a supermajority. I mean, that's important, but I would hardly argue that that's, you know, the future of democracy is at stake sort of language just doesn't fit the situation. In some ways, the plaintiffs weren't radical enough. They didn't go after some of the basic tenets of redistricting that put the Democrats at a disadvantage. They didn't try to get rid of the constitutional provision that legislative districts have to accommodate county lines as much as possible. They didn't go after that. Uh, if, if, because they didn't go after that, because of the way the geographic patterns uh, sort of dictate outcomes, I, I'm just not sure the Democrats have as much to gain here as perhaps their supporters think or as much as Republicans fear. We have, of course, one incumbent congressman who is uh, proposing to change districts. If, if the districts are redone, does that change his position? In, this is uh, Madison Cawthorn out in the yes. far western part of the state who had suggested that he might run in a slightly eastward district instead of the district uh, that he would be in if the original map stuck. Um, I had, The main effect that had was that it, as soon as he announced that, the Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore, uh, from Cleveland County said, well, I'm not going to run for Congress. I'm going to run for re-election to the North Carolina House. I think if the map is redone, we'll have to see what happens. I was never convinced that Madison Cawthorn was a shoe-in to win a Republican primary, moving from one district to another. I'm, I'm not sure that how well people would have accepted that in places like you know the suburban Charlotte and Gaston County that are very far away from where he is now. Uh, they might view him as sort of an interloper. Um, so I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. I'm not a big Madison Cawthorn fan. I will admit to that. But even if I was, I thought that his proposal to move to a different district because he wanted to keep the North Carolina Speaker of the House, that craven, squishy man 
from ever going into Congress was a very strange thing to say in a state where the legislature has done a lot of conservative things and the leader of the House is a conservative to four who's going to run for Congress. So I thought Madison Cawthorn's rationale was odd and kind of implausible. And I also wasn't sure that his plan would work. But it may all be moot because we may end up with a different congressional map where this would not really be uh, as obvious a, a, a good prospect for him. Well, that, that's something we'll all have to watch. And, and I, I, I suspect we're going to know something by the early next week, don't you? Yes, I think this is happening pretty quickly. I think everybody recognizes that whatever's going to happen, let's get on with it because we've got to get candidate filing. We've got to either stick to our May primary day, which means act right now, or we've got to push it again or something. We have to take some action right now. I think the Supreme Court understands that. Let's just get on with it. Okay, when we come back, I want to use the next segment to talk about the future of the Democratic Party in North Carolina and the future of the Republican Party. And we'll do that with John Hood when we come back on Carolina Newsmakers. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mom. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, Exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Watch out! They got me! The galaxy is safe once again. In the pretend universe, kids play with pretend guns. In the real world, it's up to us to make sure they don't get their hands on a real gun. If you have a gun in the house, keep it locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Safe gun storage saves lives. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. That's nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by N Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is uh, a guest who's been with us a number of times. I, you know, one of these days I'm going to go back and count how many times you've been on this program, John, but it's always good to have John on. He's currently serving as the president of the John William Pope Foundation and uh, has previously been with the John Locke Foundation. Um, and uh, as I said, we always look forward to John being with us because uh, he always brings a new light to some very interesting topics of the day. John is also the author of a number of books. Um, and uh, so we usually ask him uh, what book he is now working on because you're almost always working on a new book. So. <laughs> well, that's true. I, last year, I, I went in sort of a different direction and, and had my first novel published, a historical fantasy novel set during the American Revolution. It's called Mountain Folk. It came out last summer. And the sequel is called Forest Folk, and that book comes out in April. And that will be, again, a historical fantasy novel, so it combines uh, real-life historical characters with uh, monsters and, and, and elves and dwarves. 
And this particular book, Forest Focus, set during the War of 1812. And much of a lot of the action actually happens in North Carolina. There's a lot of scenes at Chimney Rock. Uh, We make a visit to Greensboro uh, in this story and the Guilford College campus. Uh, It wasn't called Guilford College at the time, but we have a little bit of action there and in Chatham County. Uh, But this is a this is a book that's set in the early 1800s and uh, comes out in April. And it's been a lot of fun. Well, you know, it's interesting because Mike Walden, who's also on our program a lot, he's also writing fiction now. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, some of us, John, sort of think some of your uh, nonfiction books were kind of fictional anyway, but I'll leave that one alone. I won't get into that. I, I, I will take that as long as people are willing to read the real thing this time. I mean, instead of pretending to write nonfiction, now I'm just going to write fiction and people can just get into it. Well, of course, one of the great books you wrote in 2015 was Jim Martin and the Rise of North Carolina Republicans. That was a great book, and uh, all your books are interesting. Uh, Of course, you usually have a word of the day. John's vocabulary is a little uh, larger than mine. Well, uh, it's considerably larger than mine, but uh, you usually have a word of the day for us. So what is your word of the day today? Well, I'm going to be kind of embarrassed to say that I'm unprepared for this part of our show today, Don. I, I, I had a busy day. I didn't have time to sort of think through a, a really, really good, long, complicated, obscure word. Uh, I can tell, since we're recording this on Zoom and I can see your face, I, I can tell that I'm, I'm making you rather dolorous. Oh, uh, that's but there's no, there's nothing I can do about it. I just couldn't come up with a, so now, an interesting vocabulary. So, uh, so I'll know how I look. What does that mean? Oh, dolorous. Oh, well, maybe we'll make that our vocabulary word. Uh, that just means sorrowful. You know, if you have a dolorous look, it means you're really conveying a lot of sorrow. Well, you know, I, I think that's a great word, but I'm not sure why people would just use sorrowful. But uh, anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, I introduced uh, the topic for this segment in the prior segment, and I said, let's let's talk about the future of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and we've uh, dallied around here to where you've got about five minutes to spend on each. So uh, you can start with either party and just sort of look ahead and say, what's the future of the Democratic Party in North Carolina, and what is the future of the Republican Party in North Carolina? The Democratic Party uh, in North Carolina uh, is in some degree of distress. Now, that's the national story, but in North Carolina in particular, here's the problem. Democrats can get elected. Obviously, we have a Democratic governor who was elected in 2016. He was reelected in 2020. We've had right now we have four of the seven Supreme Court justices are Democrats, three are Republicans. There are some seats open this fall, and I think the Republicans have a good shot of becoming a majority on the Supreme Court. But it's a competitive state. Democrats can win statewide, not as much as they used to, but it's certainly possible. Here's their problem, though. At the legislative level, because of the way Democrats and Republicans and independents have sort of been sorting themselves out and, and change some, to some extent shifting allegiances, uh, the Democrats are now heavily concentrated in urban counties, Uh, The kind of rural support the Democrats had for a long time, except in a few areas where African-American voters make up a significant share of the counties. But in most rural areas, Democrats just aren't competitive anymore. So we get down to the suburbs. We get down to places like a a Cabarrus County or Gaston County or Johnston County 
or Alamance County, uh, uh, Guilford and parts of Guilford and, and Forsyth counties, where it's a suburban area. It's not the center of town and it's not a farm. It's not a small town. It's somewhere in between. And the problem there for Democrats is that they're having a lot of trouble being competitive in those races for legislature, even when they have pretty good years. I mean, they win some of them when they have a good year and they lose some of them. In a bad year, they lose almost all of them. And so Democrats in North Carolina, while they want to elect another governor, they want to elect other statewide officials, they want to elect a U.S. senator, they'd like to have another seat or two in Congress. But for them, the by far the most important institution that they controlled for 100 years and no longer do is the General Assembly, the legislature. It's where the bulk of power is in state government. We have, just like at the federal level, we have three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. But in North Carolina politics, in North Carolina government, these three branches, while separate, are not really equal in power. The legislature simply has a lot more authority. And the fact that the Republicans have been in charge for 10 years still drives Democrats to distraction. The idea they might be in charge for another 10 years makes them dolorous, <laughs> to use a term. And I, it's become obvious to, that they haven't figured out what to do. Now, I think what they should do is figure out a way to recapture the center. Because the Republicans have the right, they have conservative voters, used to be conservative Democrats, but not, not nothing really anymore there. Um, but they've also, the Republicans have also captured a lot of centrist voters on economic questions in North Carolina. Uh, the Republicans uh, cut taxes, reduced regulations, streamlined state government, made some changes in funding and so forth. And the Democrats said it would be a disaster and nobody would want to live here anymore. And we wouldn't be a leader of the South. And it wasn't a disaster. People are moving here every year. People can, you can see that. Our economy's doing pretty well. And so the Democratic narrative that North Carolina was great much better than the rest of the South because it was run more by Democrats. And now that the Republicans in charge, North Carolina is going to sink like a stone. It just didn't work. It's not true. It didn't happen. And so their narrative is all messed up. They've got to figure out a way to get back in power uh, in the legislature in their minds, or else they will, they will be on the outside looking in. And I just don't think they figured it out. I think that their base will not allow them to embrace some of the policies that would put them into a position to win suburban districts and therefore win the legislature again. So I think in North Carolina, that's the Democratic problem or slash the Republican opportunity. Now, on the Republican side in North Carolina, uh, they have the flip side issue, which is they have cracked the nut when it comes to the legislature. It's not simply about gerrymandering. I mean, gerrymandering is a problem and I'm in favor of reforming it. But even if you didn't have gerrymandering, Republicans would have an edge in the General Assembly. And it's because they have captured not just the rural areas that used to be competitive or even lean Democratic, um, but they win more than their fair share of elections in the metro areas by winning those suburban voters. And um, they've, got a, a mission, they've got some issues that will help them do that even more. Crime is a big issue. Democrats have horribly mishandled the, the criminal justice issue to their disadvantage. And right now, uh, education has become a Republican issue. Republicans want kids to be able to go to school and they want them to be able to go to school and learn basic subjects and not be indoctrinated. 
And those two issues are working very well for the Republicans and Democrats who think otherwise are not plugged into reality. Now, the Democrats have some other issues that are good for them. I'm just saying those two issues are great for Republicans. They have to be happen to be at the top of the list of what Republicans are concerned or what voters are concerned about right now. But here's the problem for Republicans. First of all, they have only elected one Republican governor, one one Republican governor for four years since 1992. It's a long time for the Democrats to own the governor's mansion. Um, And will they be able to break that streak in 2024? I don't know. It's not obvious to me that that it's inevitable. The Democrats are still competitive on that seat. And related to that, in my opinion, again, people may disagree with me, but here's my take on it. They still have the Trump problem, which is that some of Donald Trump's policies that were enacted during his administration were successful and popular, but he is not popular. He has never really been popular. And when you run in a Trumpian sort of way, um, it turns off some of those suburban voters that I was talking about earlier. And I mean, they're not just in the suburbs, but a lot of them are in the suburbs and they will vote for Republicans on a variety of issues, but they don't want somebody who seems mean or nasty. And so um, the Republicans have to figure out a way to uh, hold the voters they have and add to that for governor. And I think that speaks to someone running for governor who sounds like a calm, reasoned, uh, uh, trustworthy person to put in charge of the executive branch. That's what Roy Cooper sounded like. Years ago, it's what Mike Easley sounded like. It's certainly what Jim Hunt sounded like. Uh, Republicans have not always run candidates who sounded like that. And they're going to need to come up with a candidate to do that. So that's their challenge. I think they have a very good shot of winning the U.S. Senate seat which of course would be holding it since it's Richard Burr's seat that he's retiring from. They have a very good shot of winning it in 2022. They have a good shot of building their legislative majorities. They have a shot of doing well in some county races in 2022, maybe winning back some sheriff seats and and county commission seats and things like that. So they have a lot of things going for them right now because of Democratic mistakes in Washington and because of good governance by Republicans in, in Raleigh. But they've got to crack their own nut, which is getting the governor's office back so that they can enact some of the policies that they want to enact without, without them being vetoed. And then, the, and then those policies be carried out in a way that the Republican legislature would like. Well, obviously, North Carolina is growing. It's a growth state. We uh, have a, one announcement after another about uh, uh, big, high-paying jobs coming in. But most of those people who are coming in are going to be very similar to ones who are already here. They're, 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 they come in sort of tainted purple to begin with. So they sort of join, at least that's my take, they sort of join the crowd. And some may be Democrats and some may be Republicans, but most of them are going to be somewhere in the middle of the road. Yeah, a lot, enough of them are that I don't think that in-migration is going to change the situation in the short run. Years ago... Back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, into the the late 90s, in-migration was a pro-Republican trend in North Carolina. As people moved here, they were more likely to be Republican than the natives were. And so this actually moved the state towards Republicans to have newcomers from other places. Now, after the turn of the millennium, turn of the century, you know, the last 20 years, the, the people coming in have been a little more Democratic than the maybe the median voter. But 
Right now, actually, Don, I think you've got it exactly right. I think the people coming in are around the median voter. I mean, they're they're not hardcore Republicans. They're not just progressive left. There's all sorts of different kinds of vote. There are young people moving here who are going to be reliably Democratic voters. There are older voters retiring here or moving here for business or to take a job, and they're Republican voters. And then there's a good swath in the middle uh, who are up for grabs. And I don't think that in migration is the story right now. I don't think that's going to help or hurt Republicans in the next few years. Um, it's really what I was talking about earlier, how are you positioned on issues. The Democrats are horribly positioned on criminal justice and on education right now. Um, and unless they write that ship, uh, the Republicans have a lot of opportunities in the coming cycles. Our guest is John Hood, and uh, we've got one final segment. Probably going to sort of turn that over to John and say, John, in the final segment, what are the top issues of the day and what uh, do you think is going to happen in the immediate future? And we'll do that when we return here on Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym stands for greatest of all time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. The president of the John William Polk Foundation is our guest, and that would be one John Hood, who's been with us a number of times. We've talked about uh, the Supreme Court nomination. We've talked about the economy. We've talked about the the uh, Biden administration, the problems they have. And then we've turned our attention to the state uh, and, uh, and uh, focused on the upcoming primary election a little bit. We've talked about the future of both the Democratic and the Republican parties. So, John, in this final segment, Let's talk about some issues and uh, what uh, let's just say there's four big issues that you're watching today. How about giving us a list of those issues and uh, if there's four or five and some comments on where we think uh, we should be focusing our attention during the next uh, month or so. Well, uh, we've talked about criminal justice, about the crime problem. Crime is 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 gone up at least violent crime, has gone up in North Carolina in the last couple of years and in much of the country. And uh, people are not happy about that, and they sort of know who they blame, and it's not Republicans. That's a problem for the Democrats. And I think some of them are grappling with it, and some of them are in denial. Uh, and then I mentioned education. Again, problem for the Democrats. Democrats usually own the issue of education. 
The problem is that they got so in line with teacher unions, teacher associations, uh, that this keeping schools closed during COVID was not a popular idea. A lot of other calls that Democrats made that Governor Cooper here in North Carolina made, I, I would grant, even if I disagreed with them, they, they were not unpopular, that people wanted the COVID taken seriously. They're right to have felt that way. But closing schools, keeping them closed for a long time, masks in schools, masking young people in schools, these are actually not popular ideas. And the Democrats are on, on the wrong uh, position on that. And it's going to hurt them. It's really going to hurt them. And they, I thought they had figured this out, but apparently they haven't yet. Let me mention another issue that uh, doesn't maybe get as much attention, but it's about to. And that is uh, how we admit students at the University of North Carolina system, Chapel Hill in particular, NC State. There was a lawsuit some years ago about the use of racial and ethnic preferences in university admissions. A group called Students for Fair Admissions had sued Harvard University, the oldest private university in the United States. And they sued University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the oldest public university in the United States. And they sued them on the basis that they were discriminating on the basis of race and ethnicity in college admissions and that that's a violation of Civil Rights Act and, and equal protection and other things. Now, this has been litigated before. In the past, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that some use of race is permissible, though it can't be a rigid quota system. It needs to be, you can do it a little bit, but not a lot. But there's, the standards on this have been pretty, pretty mushy. Since then, since the last case, though, things have progressed rather dramatically. For example, in North Carolina, listeners are hearing me right now and thinking, man, he's bringing up a really controversial subject. And, you know, what is he, is he trying to insist that our universities become segregated again? And so, of course not. But I would also gently remind our listeners that in California, it's illegal to use race as a criteria for admissions. It's not allowed. It's not allowed in the state of Washington. It's not allowed in Michigan. It's not allowed in a number of places. And I hear tell that in the University of California system, that there are plenty of Hispanic students and African-American students getting a good education. Uh, the same is true in Washington. The same is true in Michigan. Uh, there are other ways to pursue diversity in student bodies other than adding what amounts to a big plus if you happen to be an underrepresented minority. Such, to, such a large difference, Don, that there are students who are, who are denied admission to Chapel Hill who have much higher grades, much higher standardized test scores, stronger resumes, stronger applications. And they're denied because they're Asian. They're not allowed to come because they're the wrong race. That is what is happening. And that's what the lawsuit clearly illustrated. And um, that is an unpopular position. It is an indefensible position. And as I said earlier, while some may hear that and say, boy, that sounds kind of controversial to get rid of racial preferences. It's really not as controversial. It's only controversial among people like who work in the university and, you know, political activists, the general public doesn't favor these things. And this was gotten rid of in places like California years ago. They, we just had statewide referenda in California and Washington, both blue states, where the attempt was made to reinstate racial preferences in university admissions. And the voters of those blue states said, no, they don't want it. And so North Carolina, either through legislative action or through the court case going to the Supreme Court, 
this is probably done going to go away in the next year. It's going to become illegal. And I just want I just hope that UNC officials and everybody else is starting to think through how they're going to react to that and implement a new policy because that's coming. And so my point is, is that front page news right now? No, it will be front page news in a few months. And I just want people to be prepared for that. The other thing I'll bring up real quick is uh, is North Carolina's infrastructure. Um, During COVID, I, I commuted to my office after just a few weeks, I started going back to my office and boy, it was a dream. It was almost no one on the highway. I didn't speed much, but I did have a very comfortable drive to and from work. Uh, that has now changed back into congestion again, not as bad as it was before COVID because some, some people are still telecommuting, but we got a problem. We got a problem in two ways. We had a problem because we have still not kept up with some of the traffic demands in our urban areas in particular. We've got to figure out ways to build more and better and wider interstate quality roads to handle the traffic load. We just have to do that. Uh, we also have crumbling infrastructure that needs to be fixed. Now, North Carolina is not the worst state in the country or anything. We're, we're sort of better than average when it comes to infrastructure, but we've got to make uh, the right decisions here. And the other problem we have, and this has gotten some attention lately, is highway fatalities spiked significantly last year. Many more people killed on the highway. It's not primarily because of like bad pavement or congestion. It's because of rampant speeding. So I was kidding a little bit earlier. I don't speed very much. I'm talking about people who treat our North Carolina highways like they are racetracks. I bet you've seen this. I see this now almost every day. Somebody driving 20 miles or more above the speed limit and flitting in and out between cars. And the result of that is we've had significant increases in highway fatalities. So I I think the legislature, I think the governor need to work on the short term problem of reinstating enforcement and norms about traffic and reducing our traffic fatalities because we've got to take that seriously. And then we've got to think through how we're going to fund infrastructure over time as cars get more efficient. So you collect less gas tax per mile than you did before. Or maybe even people buy more and more electric cars, and so you don't collect gas tax at all. We've got to figure out how we're going to fund highways. We've got to convince people that one way or the other, they have to pay for it, and they could either pay higher taxes, or they could pay a toll, or they could pay a fee, or they could do something. But some somehow these toll, these roads have to be paid for in a rational way. So those are that's a big issue that's going to take a while to figure out. Uh, but in the in the immediate term on transportation, Don. Um, just like we've seen a spike in, in uh, opioid or uh, addiction deaths, probably related to COVID, we've also seen a spike in highway fatalities as people got used to driving sort of vacant roads and treating them as racetracks. And then as the traffic has come back in, those drivers are still doing it. Um, I also just think even crime reflects the fact that the COVID experience of people being trapped in their homes and maybe losing a job or losing an educational opportunity or just feeling trapped has resulted in problematic behavior. It has increased uh, rowdy behavior, uh, road rage, uh, fights. Um, So I I just, these are issues that I think people are, uh, these issues are, these transportation related issues are things people are really thinking about. And then I think they better be concerned with the university admissions question, because I think it's going to blow up pretty big in the next few months. 
What about the employment gap? All, all of a sudden, as we have said uh, time and time before on this program with other guests, everywhere you look, you see we're hiring. Uh, and uh, I know in my own company, we've got uh, a large number of openings and they're good jobs. Uh, we can't fill them. And uh, most people are saying the same thing. And here we are bringing in a lot of new industry, high paying jobs. Uh, what are we going to do about that? Because we don't seem to have enough people to fill the jobs that are open. And yet we're bringing in more and more, uh, especially high paying jobs uh, in the Greensboro area uh, with the uh, air manufacturer yeah and uh yeah, they've got, the, they've got a, a, a aircraft plant and a toyota battery plant going yeah, in yeah, yeah. and uh charlotte's growing and raleigh durham's growing so what are we going to do about that well it's not necessarily the case that we don't have enough people to fill these jobs but they are not filling the jobs they're not coming out into the workforce and and competing for and receiving these jobs now some of them are underqualified uh, and they need to be retrained or they don't they, they don't need, they don't have the right certification. I think we need to make it easier for people to become certified or not even require certification to take certain jobs. And I think we need to work some more on connecting people to training opportunities. Some of it is because we did have an epidemic of opioid and other kinds of drug abuse. There are people who know that they couldn't pass drug tests. There are also people who simply don't feel very much incentive to come into the labor market. Yes, wages will have to go up to draw some of them in, but even higher wages for some for some of them, they just don't find it as attractive as they used to. They may have been close to retirement. COVID hit. They decided, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and call it. I was going to work for two more years or five more years, but I'm just going to go ahead and retire. And now they're not inclined to come back into the workforce. We also have young people who decided to delay their entry to the workforce and sort of relax a little bit more. It's a complicated problem. I've tried to figure out the causal factors, Don, and I think if anybody tells you they know exactly why we have so many people on the sidelines of the labor market, I think that they are exaggerating their knowledge. All of these explanations make sense, and they're probably more, but we've got to draw people back into the labor market and get them trained for the proper jobs, uh, make it easier for them to find those jobs, make, make sure we're not trapping people in one location when what they really need to do is move to another place where the jobs are plentiful. So we also have some mismatch between where people live and where the jobs are. Uh, but I, yes, it's a big issue. Some of it will be resolved as wages go up a little bit more and pull some people into the market. But some of it can't simply be uh, fixed by, by wages going up. There's some other barriers, other stickiness in the labor market uh, that our policymakers are going to have to help employers fix. Or we're going to have persistent labor shortages in some markets and some areas, and it's going to affect all of us as consumers, not just businesses, but everybody else not getting service. And that's something we'll all feel, uh, and we're not going to like it. Well, and uh, I don't have time to open the, this topic, but of course, rising salaries means inflation, and that's another problem we've got, so we'll have to worry about that uh, also. Uh, John, thank you so much for being with us. John Hood, uh, and we'll look forward to you being back. Jason Kong has produced our program as he does each week. And if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and either hear the broadcast again or share it with a friend uh, and uh, or go back and listen to some of John's previous programs. Till next week, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.